0: All right, we've been in this chapter for some time, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to go ahead and turn there if you haven't already done so. And uh, we've been talking about, as the Apostle Paul has been discussing, this broad matter of idolatry. Um, It's a larger section, as we've discussed, that goes all the way back, beginning in chapter 8, and works its way through uh, to the conclusion of chapter 10, really, I think, maybe even... um, Yeah, all the way through chapter 10. But the, he's been talking about this matter of really um, body life and the lack of concern for the, the conscience and the spiritual vitality of fellow believers, uh, more particularly weak believers who would be in some way provoked by the exercise of a spiritual liberty. And in the context of Corinth, it was this liberty of eating food sacrificed to idols, and so uh, he moves us through a, a significant portion of this letter discussing this matter, but as we get to chapter 10, he begins to narrow down his focus to the actual practice of or inclinations toward idolatry that, that are true of even believers, pointing us to the Old Testament even and God's, God's deliverance of his chosen people Israel. And then moving us down to verse 12 where he cautions believers, New Testament, New Covenant believers in Corinth, to take heed lest you fall. So this this whole section really is a a section of instruction, of reminder of times past and of instances past, but it's also a form of warning and caution as much as it is a a word of encouragement. We've been looking at this broader question of how are we to remain faithful in a world of idols? (laughs) In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a society of idolatry. And we talked about how, you know, our our culture is very much like the culture of Corinth. There's a lot of parallels. Um, what probably is the one of the unique uh, distinctions is uh, communication technology and the Internet, which really is just a vehicle for more rapid spread of the same kind of fundamental sin and idolatry. So uh, it's really just a matter of, Of scale and rapid transmission is is what's at issue, but not fundamental principles of sin and wickedness and uh, and weakness uh, outside of Christ. But we've been trying to kind of answer this question, how are we to remain faithful in such a society? How are we to walk faithfully in body life, in life in the body of Christ in such a culture? The fact of the matter is, is that you know, the, the society that we live in, it kind of gets on us. There's like a residue that can get on us, and if we don't recognize that, and if we aren't contending with that reality on a consistent basis, then it begins to seep in. And as it seeps in, it begins to take root, and the next thing you know, we are walking in idolatrous thinking and idolatrous, even idolatrous conduct And we don't even notice it because it is so common all around us, and it's so accepted, even among professing believers. So we need to be reminded of these things because we we need to have this conviction about standing and walking faithfully in such an environment, in such a society. So we've talked about this. Uh, We've highlighted a number of different principles that we draw out of this chapter. The first one we looked at was, that we need to resist prideful presumption by recalling redemptive history. And that's just looking at the Apostle Paul's uh, lengthy discussion of Old Testament narrative, primarily focusing on the Exodus in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 10, where he he talks about these various situations and these various points of deliverance and these various acts of faithfulness, even miraculous provision on the part of God, and how what became a common refrain was that the, the people... Who God had delivered would find themselves at a point of grumbling, at a point of compromise, even in practices of idolatry, and then God would judge. And this whole you know, sort of span of, of time in the wilderness wanderings was not just historical narrative, but as the Apostle Paul said, these things were written as an example to us. We must. Take note of these things. We must learn from these things. And he says in another place in chapter 10, they were written down for our instruction. So we are are called to to resist this pride of presumption as though somehow because we are new covenant believers and because we are faithful attenders at faith community church that somehow we are immune to the uh, inclinations toward idolatrous thinking or even idolatrous conduct or habit. Take heed lest you fall. And if you want to start, you can start with what happened even with God's people whom he delivered from Egyptian bondage as a point of reference. And then we looked at how we need to resist common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. This is from verses 13 to 15. Noting that there is no temptation that is, that, that is confronting any of us that is not common to humanity It is common among men. It's just a common experience of all. And so we need to recognize that there's no reason for us in our struggle with sin to to feel justified in some strain or some habit of self-pity. Somehow our struggle with temptation is unique to me. And so if, if, if you really understood what I'm going through, those kinds of thoughts that can just flood into us when we're struggling with things, Self-pity is only an anchor that drags us further down into the depths. It does not help at all. And so this this simple statement of the Apostle Paul that there's no no temptation confronting you that is not common to man is a hedge against, even an exhortation against Self-pity. It's also, we also need to recognize that temptation doesn't have to mean temptation. It's the same Greek word as trial. And temptation becomes temptation when we are lured away by our desires and our lust, as James says. And so we need to recognize that when we think of the struggle with the trials of life, that we don't need to have a sense of, of ominous dread or almost like a sense of almost, uh, you might say, assumed failure. It's just a matter of time, right? I mean, obviously, we're, we, like, we, we, we often will use this phrase. I mean, we're all sinners, right? Right, We're all sinners. And indeed, we are. But the fact of the matter is is that this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 13, he's, uh, it says that God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. So the focus for us in this struggle is to recognize that, that a trial or a test doesn't have to become a temptation. It doesn't have to become a source that, that taps into our carnal desires, that, that we, if we recognize that this is not, not about us trying harder to overcome, it's about us trusting God's promises more. That God is faithful is what this passage is about. And He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And He is the one that will always provide a way of escape. There is comprehensive promise from God Himself in this struggle, in this trial, in this fallen world, in these trials in this fallen world. And so we have to resist common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. Not trusting in our own willpower to overcome The more you trust in yourself to overcome sin, the more gripped sin becomes in your life. And the more self-pity becomes to take root. And the more we grapple and we go through these cycles. But, But if we cultivate confidence and trust not in ourselves, but in the Lord's faithfulness, then we begin to have power to endure, he talks about in that same section, to endure the test that's before us. And we noticed in James chapter 1 that the whole purpose of these trials and the reason why we can count them joy is because they produce in us endurance. And not only that, but it is one of the primary means that God uses to make us mature and complete so that we lack nothing. Why wouldn't we, if we understand that I'm going through this difficulty, I'm confronted with this relationship conflict, I'm, I'm struggling with this situation at work, whatever it might be, why wouldn't we embrace that with complete joy if we know that this very test is one of God's most effective means to mature us and to make us complete so that we lack nothing? <coughs> and to also cultivate greater endurance. In addition, if you think about all this in the context of 1 Corinthians and what the Apostle Paul has been going after, he's been going after this, what you might just call a self-centered perspective on life in the body of Christ. I mean, if if you have a sense like the Corinthians had in Corinth in the first century, if you had arrived at an understanding that said, an idol is nothing. So eating food sacrificed to idols is also nothing, and you would hear a concurrence from the Apostle Paul himself. Yeah, you're right. An idol is nothing, and so therefore eating food sacrificed to idols is indeed nothing. But if we if we settle on that being the only consideration, we get we get trapped into this way of thinking that is completely self centered, and yet we are placed in a body with other believers for whom we are called to have substantial concern for their well-being. And so if there's another believer in our midst, who, when considering eating food sacrificed to idols, who maybe have just been saved out of that that sort of pagan practice, if their conscience is provoked, then then I would gladly give up my my freedom to eat that food. Why wouldn't I? But when we become self-centered in our thinking then we begin to operate that way and we begin to move in these directions of self-pity or evaluating our struggle with temptation as something that's just unique to us and all these kinds of things. So the broader issue continues to be this is not just about you. That you and I were redeemed, we were saved to have fellowship with God in the context of communal fellowship with other believers. That there is no no teaching in the New Testament that speaks to our salvation and our walk of faith in Christ as some kind of lone ranger, isolated enterprise. It's never like that. And I've said this before. You can't properly and accurately interpret most of the New Testament outside the context of a local church. Because most of it's letters to local churches. And so if we if we are reading the New Testament and if we are thinking principally about what the New Testament teaches in very isolated and narrow and sort of self-applicable terms all the time, we probably need to take a few steps back and start thinking more broadly about how our, our sanctification, our walk of faith, our putting off and putting on, not only has... Um, blessing and benefit for me, but more significantly, it enables me to be more of a blessing and to give more benefit to those that I'm linked together with in common fellowship. And so this brings us to this third principle that we're going to kind of veer off from just a little bit. Uh, today, not not veer off completely, but talk about it from a different perspective. But it's this third principle of recognizing that we have to recognize the true nature of communal fellowship in Christ. This is in verses 14 to 18. Let me read this together for us. He's kind of moving now into his closing argument of this entire section that began back in chapter 8. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and, do, and, and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So in this section, the Apostle Paul begins to, you might say, draw a stark and strong contrast between the nature and essence of our common fellowship that is in some way represented in or reflected in the partaking of the cup that we bless and the bread that we bless, the, the communion elements. And so he, he brings to the fore communion, this actual act that was initiated by Christ at Passover shortly before his crucifixion, and has been carried forward throughout church history. So we want to talk a little bit today. We we talked a bit about the implications of this last week, but I told you, or not last week, but week before last, but I told you at the end of that time that I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at the primary views on communion and then maybe ask or answer the question by implication why we have the view that we have, why we practice what we practice as opposed to some other particular view. So that's why I say today is going to be a little more, uh, maybe a little more technical, although not extensively, and a little more academic, although hopefully not uh, extensively. Hopefully, hopefully, well, if I just tell you there will be no tests or no grades, hopefully that will motivate you to say, okay, everything's going to be okay. Um, so, Let's let's talk a little bit, let's kind of veer off a little bit since since the Apostle Paul moved us into the direction, and by the way, when we get to chapter 11, he's going to talk more about the communion table, Um, so we'll probably circle back on some of this when we get to chapter 11, but in in looking at this whole matter of communion, I want to start by just reading what the the Faith Community Church doctrinal statement says, okay, this is a very short paragraph in our doctrinal statement under the section of the church, And, and we say, the Lord's Supper. "...is an act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, memorialize and proclaim the death of the Redeemer and anticipate His second coming. It should always be preceded by solemn self-examination. The elements of communion are only representative of the flesh and blood of Christ. When we properly share in communion, we spiritually participate in fellowship with Jesus Christ and with other believers." The Lord's Supper is a command from the Lord Jesus himself to every believer. That's our statement on communion, on the Lord's table. Now, throughout history, uh, there's really four primary distinctive views, or somewhat distinctive views, I will say, in some cases, that have emerged around the Lord's table. How many of you um, grew up uh, Roman Catholic? Anyone? Any Roman Catholics uh, heritage in, in the room? Okay. How many of you uh, grew up or had some period of time in the Lutheran church? Okay, so several of you will be somewhat familiar with this. And, you know, if, if I'm misrepresenting, particularly the Lutheran view, if I'm misrepresenting that in any way, um, I don't know. Just come tell me, but I, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. It's I found the Lutheran view to be... Roman Catholic light. That's what, I, that's what I find it to be. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, and I am talking about Martin Luther. Like, 95 Theses Martin Luther. You know, that, that guy. Um, so it's interesting how the, 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 the focus for us as God's people is always to go back to the text of Scripture and seek to understand... What God means by what He says. Martin Luther did great things for Protestantism, but Martin Luther is not the Scripture. So that's that's another element to just it's, this is one of those areas where like you're you're reminded of that principle. I, just so you know, I have a shirt with Martin Luther's head on it. So there's a lot to commend him, and then there's a lot to not commend him. By the way. Anyway, I'm about to get into my church history discussion. We need to go there. All right. So four primary views. I'll just kind of list them really quickly, and then we'll kind of move through this. So the Roman Catholic view is often referred to as the view of transubstantiation. We'll talk about that. The Lutheran view has been sort of identified, and Lutherans would say pejoratively or not favorably, but this is how it's been identified. It's a view called consubstantiation. Uh, a faithful Lutheran does not like the use of that term to describe their their beliefs, so I'm going to go ahead and acknowledge that. I understand that, but that's what we're going to use because it is a theological term that emerged very early on in these debates, centuries ago, as a descriptor, okay? So if you still have a little bit of a Lutheran hangover from your heritage and you're offended by that, just re- understand the context um, and get over yourself as well. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so the Lutheran view of consubstantiation, and then the Reformed view, which would emphasize Christ's spiritual presence, and then the Zwinglian view. I don't like the Zwinglian view, as the I mean it's just one dude. But um, I guess the Lutheran view, then the Zwinglian view. Uh, Lutheran Zwingli, by the way, did not get along um, personally. Anyway, the Zwinglian view is of a memorial celebration. So the Lord's table is a memorial celebration of something. So you've got the Reformed view and the Zwinglian view that are more closely aligned, if you will. So the the Reformed view is spiritual presence of Christ in the communion elements. The Zwinglian view is one of memorial celebration. The elements themselves are are symbolic and representative. So we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So those are the four views. We'll come back to them as we kind of dig a little bit deeper here. But let's just, let's talk about the institution and practice of the Lord's table. Let's begin with the text of scripture. Um, Let's start with Luke chapter 22. This is a familiar passage to, to, I'm sure, most of you, if not all of you. Um, And you could go to to Matthew, or you could go to Mark, and you could see, you know, a a similar scene with a little bit of of variation on what the various gospel writers capture, what the Spirit inspires them to kind of take down about this particular scene. Of course, this is shortly before Jesus is uh, arrested and goes on trial and is ultimately crucified, and he is gathered with his disciples. In the famous upper room, um, I think it even had a sign over it that said, Welcome to the upper room. No, I'm just kidding. So, So this is the gathering place where they're having this Passover meal. It is, in fact, Passover. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But here's what we read in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 14. It says, And when the hour came, he, meaning Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, "This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table on the table, for the Son of Man go- goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, and they began to question one another which of them uh, which of them it could be who was going to do this so this this introduces this this Re, sort of this transformation, if you will, of the Passover elements, the, the, the bread and the cup. Like Jesus is doing something here that is to be formative for new covenant people going forward. And so we, we have to take note that this is a, a transformation of Passover tradition and elements. Okay, that's sort of the, that's sort of Jesus' institution of this, this practice. We know that this was carried forward with great devotion because we see this very early on, right after, shortly after uh, Peter preaches at Pentecost, and essentially the New Testament, New Covenant people, the church is sort of launched in that, in that season, in Acts 2.42, we have that familiar passage describing what those New Testament, those New Covenant believers were doing together. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that statement, the breaking of bread, I mean, we might use that term to say, let's go, you know, let's go grab a, a meal together. But in the context of of the the New Testament as it unfolds, we note that this reference to breaking of bread was uh, regularly included a communion meal. Okay, so it wasn't, it also might have included a a regular meal as part of it. And we'll see the Apostle Paul sort of dealing with the the sort of uh, corruption of the practice in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But this reference to breaking of bread is a reference to them partaking of this newly instituted practice that Jesus, we just referenced Jesus speaking of in the upper room in Luke chapter 22. And then we have the familiar passage that Shane often references when we take communion here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25 In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, excuse me, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So you have here the Apostle Paul. And by the way, it's likely that 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels were written and circulated. So this would have been... Insofar as it got circulated widely, this would have been the first sort of technical instruction on the practice and institution of the Lord's table in the New Testament church. The Apostle Paul certainly brings weight to bear on the practice in the life of the church. and He he cautions, don't don't do this in an unworthy manner because you'll bring judgment on yourself, he says. Now, uh, one, one theological book, one sort of a systematic theology called Biblical Doctrine, says this, The observance of communion was practiced by the church from its inception on the day of Pentecost, as I've already referenced. The early church also developed congregational meals that came to be known as love feasts, which were usually concluded with a celebration of the Lord's Supper. These meals were designed to foster fellowship and mutual care among the members of the church. So that takes you to the beginning. Okay, this is where it all began. That's the that's the legitimate literal historical backdrop, both in terms of Jesus instituting this this special practice, this special meal, and then the church taking that practice up and beginning to engage in it as they gathered. Now the historical backdrop behind that is the Passover. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to read this to you guys because There's such important um, insight and implication when you just look at what the Passover was to be able to understand what Jesus was actually teaching and instructing his new covenant people to do as a practice related to or as as an extension, if you will, of or a transformation of the Passover meal. When you get to uh, Exodus, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 12, I would encourage you to do so. Just remember that God has not put any test before you that you will not be able to endure. But don't use the idea of escaping as a reason to leave the classroom right now, okay? I know I'm I'm asking a lot. Exodus chapter 12. Starting verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month. Of the year for you. Now, just obviously, if you recall this history, the, the plagues of Egypt had happened. This was the last, going to be the last one. The, the Passover destroying angel sent by God was going to come and pass over <coughs> Egypt and pass over the homes of the Israelites, and they were to, to engage in this so that they would be saved from the destruction of the firstborn. Okay, so this is what he's talking about here. Uh, this month shall, uh, uh, shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you, uh, for you. Verse 3 Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make uh, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you, shall not let, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning, anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So in other words, once this all is done, we're getting out of Dodge. That's the whole idea there. and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever you shall keep it as a feast 7 days you shall you shall not excuse me 7 days you shall eat oven, unleavened bread on the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the 7th day that person shall be cut off from Israel on the first day you shall hold an assembly And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. And for on this day, this very day, I brought your host out of the land of of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day through your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places, and shall eat, uh, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel." And the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That's the history. So this particular ordinance is what Jesus and his disciples were celebrating when he instituted this new approach, this new practice for new covenant believers. He transformed it into a new covenant practice. But notice verse 14. It says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. Zikaron, it says, a remembrance. That's literally what the word means in Hebrew. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute, literally an ordinance. You shall keep it forever, and keep it as a feast, he says. So in other words, Passover is an ordained remembrance of the actual occasion of God's deliverance of his people from his own judgment of Pharaoh, who was the cause of their bondage. So when you think about this, this practice from the very beginning, once you move beyond the actual moment of the destroying angel literally passing over their homes, if he saw the blood on the doorposts and on the lentils, the blood from this sacrificial, unblemished lamb that would result in the passing over as part of his judgment of the source of bondage, then you can begin to see where this is going and what Jesus is trying to convey in the practice of communion. It was an ordained remembrance that Jesus transformed into an ordained remembrance of the ultimate deliverance of God's people from slavery to sin and death. That's a quote from Biblical Doctrine. It's very easy to see the correlation when you see it in the context of what Passover actually was intended to represent. Another theologian says, The Passover looked back to the temporary rescue from physical bondage. The Lord's Supper commemorates the eternal and spiritual deliverance provided through the New Covenant. The lamb slaughtered during the Passover merely foreshadowed the sacrifice of the spotless lamb of God who died on a cross to redeem sinners once for all. So with all that in mind, let's look at these views. I think it's important for us to not look at these views through the lens of whatever we've grown up in, but through the lens of what actually was revealed. Okay? So let's, let's look at these views through, a, through the actual lens of the text of Scripture that we just read. The first view is the Roman Catholic view. We we refer to it as transubstantiation. Just a little bit about this. Uh, It's literally called the Liturgy of the Eucharist. That's the sort of the technical practice, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Eucharist is uh, from a Greek word, eucharisteo, which just means to be thankful. It's literally in the Greek. It's, it's, It's even referenced there in Luke chapter 22. It says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, that's uh, Eucharisteo, uh, that's the same word. That's where we get the term Eucharist. So the calling it the liturgy of Eucharist, Eucharist is not some anathema, you know, Roman Catholic heresy kind of word. I just want to make sure you understand that. It's It's a fine word, but it's called the liturgy of the Eucharist. It's important to note that in the Roman Catholic tradition, this is one of the seven sacraments or the means of grace in the Roman Catholic religion. Okay? So taking communion is not just participating in a celebratory meal of remembrance, it is literally a means by which grace is infused to the recipient. Okay? So from a from a theological or doctrinal perspective, not just from a practical perspective, they believe that this is this is part of God's transference of actual grace, saving grace to a recipient. It's one of those sacraments. One, a prominent Catholic writer describes it like this. This is from a, a Roman Catholic. The seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the, the anointing of the sick, are the life of the Catholic Church. All of the sacraments were instituted by Christ himself, and each is an outward sign of an inward grace. When we participate in them worthily, each provides us with graces, with the life of God in our soul. In worship, we give to God that which we owe him. In the sacraments, he gives us the graces necessary to live a truly human life. The first three sacraments, he goes on to say, baptism, confirmation, and Holy Communion are known as the sacraments of initiation because the rest of our life as a Christian depends on them. So, understanding that this is not just a view of a different way to do communion. They believe that this is a part of sustaining your actual salvation and spiritual vitality before God in in the partaking of Holy Communion. Uh, This writer, this Catholic writer says in another place, the sacrament of Holy Communion is the third of the sacraments of initiation. Even though we are required to receive communion at least once per year, our Easter duty, and the church urges us to receive communion frequently, even daily if possible, It is called a sacrament of initiation because, like baptism and confirmation, it brings us into the fullness of our life in Christ. So to not participate in the Roman Catholic liturgy of Eucharist, in the Roman Catholic practice of communion, like, in other words, you don't get a pass from the Roman Catholic perspective because you participate in our communion services. That's not legit because this is the, the, a, a means by which we are brought into the fullness of life in Christ by participating in this. Now, we mentioned this technical, sort of theological description called transubstantiation. This is the official Roman Catholic teaching that refers to a change that takes place during the sacrament of Holy Communion. This change involves the whole substance... Of the bread and wine being turned miraculously into the whole substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. And I'm sure you've heard of this before, but I want that to just settle in on you for a little bit. This is what billions of Roman Catholics are practicing routinely. They are convinced that in in the ceremony, there is a transformation of substance transubstantiation, a transformation of the substance of the bread and the wine into the substance of the body and the blood of Christ. That's that's the belief. According to the Roman Missal, which is the book containing the prescribed prayers, chants, and instructions for the celebration of the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, this is a Roman Catholic instructional manual on worship and practice. It says this. uh, the, the, The big moment, by the way, is called the Eucharist prayer. And here's what it says about it. The main elements of which the Eucharistic prayer consists may be distinguished from one another in this way. First, the thanksgiving, in which the priest, in the name of the whole of the holy people, glorifies God the Father and gives thanks to Him for the whole work of salvation or for some particular aspect of it according to the varying day, festivity or time of year. So it starts with the thanksgiving prayer. Then there is the acclamation by which the whole congregation, joining with the heavenly powers, sings the sanctus, holy, holy, holy. This acclamation, which constitutes part of the Eucharistic prayer itself, is pronounced by all the people with the priest. And then you have what's called the epiclesis, which is a summoning, an invitation, an invocation, I should say. And this is the means, this is, it says the epiclesis, in which by means of particular invocations, the church employs, the, implores, I should say, the power of the Holy Spirit That the gifts offered by human hands to be consecrated, the, the, the bread and the wine, that is, that they become Christ's body and blood, and that the unblemished sacrificial victim to be consumed in communion may be for the salvation of those who partake of it. And I will just note that in this published document by the Roman Catholic Church, it has the reference this unblemished sacrificial victim it has victim capitalized it's a reference to christ there there is a literal belief that there is a consumption a salvific consumption of this transformed substantively transformed body and blood of christ that it may be for the salvation of those who will partake of it. So, it goes through other elements of this, but that's kind of the moment where the priest, and by the way, read some other things, the priest actually assumes the person of Christ in his proclamation of these things. He he, he assumes the role of Christ in in the working out of this, this practice. Now, I have this bullet point here. I'm kind of surveying the room, and I'm thinking this might be unnecessary. But my bullet point says, why reject this view? So, let me just read something to you so you can understand from a biblical perspective. This view of communion must be rejected for at least two reasons. First, it fails to recognize the symbolic significance of Christ's statements. This is my body, and this is my blood. This is where all the confusion and all the misunderstanding lies. What, What does is mean? Can you imagine in the English, one of the tiniest words in our whole vocabulary is created confusion and even a form of mystical blasphemy and an undermining of the actual atonement of Christ? But that's that's where it is. It fails to recognize the symbolic significance of Christ's statements, this is my body and this is my blood. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John 6.35, a verse Roman Catholics often use to support their understanding of the Eucharist, his statement ought to be interpreted in the same way as his other I am statement, such as, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, and I am the vine. These metaphorical expressions illustrate the truth of the gospel in profound ways, but they are not to be understood in woodenly literalistic terms. Second, by viewing the Eucharist as a repeated or ongoing sacrifice, the Catholic view undermines the reality that Christ's death on the cross was a once-for-all sacrifice. Romans chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, 1 Peter chapter 3. It's been fully completed on Calvary, John 19. So, in, in partaking of the communion elements with that kind of belief, every time, which, by the way, that one Catholic writer said, you should do this every day if you can. You are literally believing that there is a new offering of Christ's body and blood in sacrificial atonement for your sins that you will receive in the consumption, so this is not just a weird practice like that 's weird, I would never do that. This is an undermining of christ's once for all sacrifice, this is bringing it down to such a pagan human level that 's alarming to me that 's the Roman Catholic view. the Lutheran view, consubstantiation or sometimes referred to as real pre pre uh, real presence, I should say, Luther rejected the Roman Catholic conception of transubstantiation as well as the corresponding belief that the practice of communion was a literal propitiatory sacrifice, a literal satisfactory sacrifice for sin. So he would not articulate that he believed that um, that it was the literal body and blood of Christ. Or that it was a literal sacrifice uh, for sins in the taking of it, um, but his view, I believe, was a very subtle distinction without a lot of difference, in my estimation. And I, I say that because I'm going to he, he would he would use the phrase uh, what what is it. Um, uh, This was held by Martin Luther, this view. uh, He wished to correct the errors of the Roman Catholic view while still taking seriously both Jesus' identification of his body and blood with the elements and the idea that he was truly present at the supper. Luther's solution was to say that although the bread and wine did not literally become the body and blood of Christ, Jesus is nonetheless spiritually present in, under, and through the elements. Whatever that means. Now, listen to a little bit of what uh, we're going to have to move fast a little bit of what um, Luther said himself. This is in his his larger catechism. He says, It is the Word, capital W Word, the Word made flesh. It is is the Word, I say, which makes and distinguishes this sacrament. By the way, Lutherans believe it is also a sacrament. It is, in some way, a means, a, a physical means, a physical manifestation of God's dispensing of his grace. It is the word which makes and distinguishes the sacrament so that it is not mere bread and wine, but is and is called the body and blood of Christ. If the word be joined to the element, it becomes a sacrament. The saying of St. Augustine is so properly and so well put that he has scarcely said anything better. The word must make a sacrament of the element, else it remains a mere element. Now it is not the word or ordinance of a prince or emperor, but the sublime majesty at whose feet all creatures should fall and affirm it is, as he says, and accept it with all reverence, fear, and humility. So he says, if Jesus said that the word said, this is my body, then it has to be in some way his body. If the word made flesh says, this is my blood, then in some way it has to be his blood. In some way. It's, it's the word made flesh combined with the words he said that compels the conviction that there is some substance of Christ in, over, and under the actual elements of communion. Now, I listen to a Lutheran try to explain this, and they basically appeal to the fact that there is mystery and there's elements that you can't explain, which I'm okay with. I mean, I'm okay with kind of resigning yourself to the fact that there is an element of mystery. But I think that the problem is that it lacks... Martin Luther, no doubt, had a serious Roman Catholic hangover. I mean, he, 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 it was hard for him to shed, you know, all the baggage of his, his training and his upbringing. So there was elements where, you know, it was hard for him to sort of interpret biblical instruction in, a, in an un-varnished kind, of kind of way. He talks about, Luther goes on to talk about in this catechism how it provides a nourishment, So the the elements in some way provide spiritual nourishment. And as well as, as Jesus said, for the remission of your sins, it it somehow provides forgiveness of sins. So in other words, it's not a representative of the sacrifice that he's about to undertake that will be for the remission of your sins. It's actually the elements that he's dispensing to the apostles in the upper room that has that, that power. Okay, I am so out of time. Am I going to have to finish this next time? How are we doing? Do you guys want me to, to, to finish next time or do you want me to rush through the end? I'll take a vote. Next time? Okay. Now, if, okay, I'm going to wait until next time to do the other two views, but if there's like five people in here, I, I, I'll be hurt by that. I, I will. I will. It's like, oh yeah, no, no, do it next time. That would be good. Yeah. Next time would be awesome. Alright, so I am, I am rushing uh, through this, I do want to get to, because the Reformed and the, and the Zwinglian view are very much similar, and, and they, it moves in our direction as well, so. Alright, so I don't know what to say other than class dismissed, I guess I'll pray and close this out, um, and I hope that your ears aren't bleeding now, I really do. Let's pray.